Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Witness Docs from Stitcher. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax, it is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist, you're gonna have to tell me. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic to keep you informed, prepared, and calm. We're all in this together, my friends. Outbreaks of COVID-19 are now flaring up in Africa. New lockdowns are being put in place in northeastern China. And there are worrying signs of a coronavirus-related malady that affects teens and children. While the president says he's looking forward to big, big stadiums loaded with people, 89,000 deaths have been recorded in the United States so far, and that number is still climbing by about 1,500 new deaths each day. People keep calling the current situation unprecedented. But this is far from the first time a pandemic has circled the globe, permanently altering lives. In recent years, we've had AIDS, MERS, SARS, and Ebola. Further back in history, there was the Black Death, Yellow Fever, Blue Death, a.k.a. the Spanish Flu, that killed more than 50 million people in 1918 and 1919. What have we learned from these past pandemics that could help us now? Most important, why does this keep happening? So here to help us answer those questions is Mark Honigsbaum. He's a medical historian and the author of The Pandemic Century, 100 Years of Panic, Hysteria, and Hubris. He also hosts the podcast Going Viral. Mark, you wrote a book talking about all the pandemics we've had, and I've said many times that everybody's here because our ancestors lived through the Spanish flu. So that, to me, is a famous thing. You go to a a cemetery here in the U.S., Uh, look at uh, tombstones from the turn of the last century, and there's all these kids who died at eight, nine, ten years old from ostensibly the Spanish flu. But we didn't really learn anything from that. Why is that? (laughs) Why does it keep happening? Mm. Well, I, I often say that one of the lessons of medical history is that we forget the lessons of medical history. Um, So, What I do in my book, The Pandemic Century, is um, I remind people of some of those lessons that we continually forget. So one of the most simple lessons is that after each pandemic or epidemic crisis, 
there's a period at the height of that where everyone is keen to, you know, do all the things we didn't do before, like invest in, uh, you know, medical um, therapeutics, vaccines. And there's a burst of funding afterwards. And then we move on to the next thing. And those priorities fall down the list, you know, gradually, gradually, gradually. But one of the most basic lessons we forget is that um, a lot of these epidemics and pandemics start from the animal kingdom. You know, they're not all, but 70% of epidemic or pandemic diseases are what we call zoonoses. So they're pathogens that reside in animal reservoirs and then cross the species barrier or spill over into human populations. And we've known this for a long time, and we've had all sorts of insights. Recently, Ebola is a classic disease that spills over um, coronaviruses, even influenza. Influenza uh, circulates continually in, in wild waterfowl, ducks and geese, right, and shearwaters and terns. Uh, and it's only really when it gets into domestic poultry, you know, chickens and turkeys, and then it can recombine with a human or swine influenza virus. And that's typically how you get these pandemic influenza viruses. Um, so we don't know for certain. We think that the 1918 Spanish influenza started in exactly that way. With that said, why is it we don't learn anything? Like if if we have worked backwards and sequenced the genome of the 1918 flu, why is it we're not ready for this new thing? Why is it we don't have systems in place? Is it just loss of institutional memory? Is that all it is? I mean, we, when I compare it to military things, in the U.S., the military is ready for anything all the time. They're just continually practicing, continually spending tax dollars on extraordinary weapon systems to do extraordinary things. And uh, in the U.S., you know, with the aircraft carriers, we can deploy military might anywhere. But not so with pandemic, not so with this virus. What, what happened? You know, it's a good question. I think it's a real puzzle. Uh, I think about this long time. I mean, the short and simple answer is we simply don't invest enough uh, money, time or expertise in it. And then we don't uh, prioritize it enough at a political level. And, you know, there's nothing more certain that there will be more pandemics, right? To be honest, we were told that continually in the run up to this. How many times have you heard it's not a question of if there'll be a pandemic, but when? Yet when that when happened, and the when happened in January in Wuhan in China, there, I kind of think there was like a collective failure of what I call a failure of the pandemic imagination. Um, and this doesn't just go to, you know, the usual suspects. I don't need to name him, you know, the occupant of Pennsylvania Avenue. But also a lot of scientists were kind of fell into groupthink. So all our planning, and this is another major theme of my book, is I think part of the reason we're not prepared is that we're always preparing for the last pandemic. Why aren't we doing what they're doing in Taiwan and Hong Kong, where, by the way, there are fewer cases of people being hospitalized and dying of severe illness? You know, why are we doing what they're doing? Maybe they learned something during SARS-1, and that's why they're wearing masks and gloves. It comes down to hubris, you know, complacency. 
among a lot of political leaders, and uh, particularly in United States, we were all watching what's going on in Asia and, and, and in China. And we're thinking that somehow we're, we're different. We're exceptional. You know, the, the fallacy of exceptional. We definitely had that feeling about SARS and MERS that, oh, it's over there. Oh, it's Ebola even. It's very serious. Thank goodness it's not here. We are different. Speaking of hubris and loss of institutional memory, do you think television will make any difference? This is to say nowadays, uh, when you talk about something that happened 50 years ago, 60 years ago, there's video and audio of those events. Whereas I think after 1918, there wasn't so much. Do you think it will make any difference in your learned observational opinion? What I see in the modern day is that um, our memories are getting shorter. We're not so good at long-term historical thinking of the, the the sort of things that I do and scholars do in universities uh, is is actively uh, you know denigrated in public life and even in education and, and in the media right so our memories are very short term you can bring out a book on a subject and after five years it's completely forgotten somebody else can bring out another book on the same subject and everyone thinks it's the first book on that subject. Um, so what happened with the Spanish influenza, if we want to come back to that, is that people, you're right, in a sense, in that, um, you know, we didn't have TV, we certainly didn't have social media. It wasn't even well reported by newspapers at the time, because there was a bigger story, which was World War One, And on top of that, there was censorship. So anything that was seen to panic or alarm um, civilian populations during wartime wasn't very well reported. They were mixed, right? People getting killed in the war or and people dying of the flu, it just was more death. Exactly. So, I mean, so even though we know that extraordinary number of people, 50 million worldwide, 675,000 Americans died of Spanish influenza, those deaths were in a way discounted ahead of time because we'd already had, at least in Europe, four and a half years of warfare where people had been used to uh, brothers... Uh, you know, or fathers or husbands dying at the front. And they've been used to seeing the obituary columns of the Times and other newspapers full of those deaths. So when uh, the Spanish influenza, the killing wave came along um, in the autumn, the fall of 1918, very briefly, deaths of the Spanish influenza victims displaced the dead of um, uh, Flanders and the killing fields of Northern Europe. But then the other thing that happened, of course, was the war was over. November 11th, 1918, everyone went out on the streets and celebrated. The last thing they wanted to do was dwell on this other uh, horrible disease that was still circulating. It seemed like almost um, the last dark joke at their expense. We'll be back right after this. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. 
but there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. You think that actually our memories are getting shorter and shorter. Our hubris is getting deeper and deeper more pronounced than ever really well i i yes well i think i think you have to separate this idea of hubris from, from memory so i i think we're not very good at long-term thinking um so a very good example of that is climate change which i know you've been um very uh involved with um so you know uh one good thing possibly to come out of this pandemic is it will focus on us on the links between emerging infectious diseases and the way we destroy ecologies in the way that makes pandemics, but also climate destruction more likely. But the problem is that uh, that calls for like long-term solutions and planning ahead of time and the political cycle and also the media, the 24-7 media cycle does not lend itself to that. But if you're talking about hubris, that's much more a problem also of scientific knowledge itself because you will know that scientists can become prisoners of particular paradigms, but also modes of thought. Um, And they can only see as far as their technologies or theories allow them to see at the time until something new comes along and forces them to reevaluate everything they knew or thought they knew about something. Okay, but hang on. This is another pandemic. I mean, how to say it's it's a new virus. Okay, but the steps you would take are pretty much the same. But Bill, nobody thought they were the same because the model everyone was using was pandemic influenza. And with pandemic influenza, nobody thought that you could use social distancing as an effective tool. Really? To slow, yeah. I mean, people are very skeptical about social distancing for the reason that how how in a, a, a modern uh, in, interconnected world where you're relying on all these supply chains and, and the economy has to keep doing How could you ask people to just stop the clock in the economy? Uh, that's one thing. But the other thing from a scientific point of view is that uh, because influenza spreads very rapidly and has a short incubation period, when people, when scientists themselves first thought, saw coronavirus, they reverted to all the pandemic plans that had been predicated on controlling influenza. And all the lessons from influenza pandemics were, hey, once influenza's already in your community or in your midst, you can't do anything about it. It's already very widespread. You can't shut down those transmission chains. That is not true of COVID-19, okay? It spreads differently. Most pandemic models uh, are predicated on the idea that you'll have to get to only a quarter of the population or maybe at most half the population will be infected or affected by a new pandemic influenza. In the case of COVID, we need to get to 70%, at least, from zero. That's a stretch. So do you have a prediction about the next pandemic? Do you have a prediction about this one? I have a prediction about this one, everybody. It's May 18th, the, the eruptiversary of Mount St. Helens erupting on May 18th, 1980. I was living in the Northwest at the time. It was quite a thing. 
Uh, the volcano will erupt again. Just can't tell you when in human terms. Uh, but I'll also predict that in U.S. in states like Georgia, Wisconsin, Texas, in the next two weeks there will be more deaths and more infections. Wow, Bill Nye is psychic. No, I just when you start going out and getting haircuts and hanging out, it's just going to happen, you guys. And if you're like me, and I know I am, I don't want to be one of the dead people. But that aside, uh, can you? Mark, make a prediction about this pandemic, and can you make a prediction about the next one? Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Bill, but as a medical historian, I don't make predictions. I do, however, offer prescriptions from medical history. This is about the health of the whole planet. It's about planetary health. Uh, And one of the inspirational figures in my book, uh, The Pandemic Century, is a French-born medical researcher who spent most of his career at the Rockefeller. You may recall him, René Dubot. Okay, René Dubot coined the phrase, think globally, act locally. Okay, there will certainly be more pandemics and epidemics, um, but the challenge for us is to think in global terms about how this is linked to the health of the planet and the way that we create or cause these imbalances in nature that make it more likely that these diseases, these viruses that normally circulate in discrete animal reservoirs will spill over into human populations because of the way that we permit people to farm on uncultivated land, near to nature reserves, near to rainforests, the way we build roads, you know, fast, uh, better roads into these areas, the way those roads connect to cities, the way those cities are connected through international jet travel. I mean, Wuhan had something like 100 direct flights to, I think, more than 70 destinations worldwide. That, that wasn't the case 10 years ago, okay? So, you know, the the what nowhere in the world is that distant or separated from anywhere else you know in epidemiological or immunological terms we're we're one planet so you probably heard this term one health which is this idea that comes out of veterinary medicine and ecology that you know the health of animals and the health of the humans are no longer two separate spheres we need to think of them as one so this is a big thing with me when i was 9 years old the United Nations determined there were about 3 billion people in the world. Now there's 7.7 billion, and that's it, you guys. It's more than doubled in my lifetime, and, and that's why we are now in charge. Humans are now running the ship. It was not a, a thing we applied for. It wasn't a job we wanted. We are now, we've got to think of the earth as our system, and we've got to take care of it. Yeah, we are the virus. We're replicating more successfully than any other virus that nature's thrown at us. That's one thing humans are great at. I really see this as a a pandemic crisis sparked by decades of underinvestment in public health. There you go. After all, there would be no need for the social distancing lockdown if we could just, you know, be sure that we could cope with the surge of all these really sick mainly disproportionately disadvantaged people and elderly people with underlying health problems. You know, let's fix that first. So what happened? How did people become, if I may, science blind? That's an excellent question. So um, I know you're involved in education. You know, I I teach, I lecture at university. And one thing I, I try and do is teach the next generation of journalists to be better at reporting health and science. 
And the problem I encounter time and time again, these are typically 18-year-olds coming out of high school, is they want to do journalism. Maybe some of them have studied biology, you know, at a higher level, but most of them haven't even studied that. And what I found is there's really what's this, this divide that C.P. Snow identified in the 60s between the humanities and the sciences, what he called the two cultures, uh, still, you know, runs like a fissure through our society. And, you know, some of the people who most need to understand science, politicians, right? The politicians aren't educated and don't understand anything about science. How can they make informed decisions about the world or how to respond to these crises? Most scientists I know, you know, can quote Shakespeare or tell you what their favorite moves. Some of them even write poetry and are pretty good artists. But how many artists and writers are literate with science? That's what has to change. How do you talk to young people? Is there anything, hey, this is important, remember this for the future? I think it's more than young people. I think, um, and I was talking to my daughter about this the other day. So my daughter's in her, her 20s. And like many young people, she's very frustrated that she's had to put her life on hold. Uh, and she made a really good point. She said, well, you know, in the Victorian period, there were all sorts of diseases that could kill you. And if you're a parent, you know, you, you might typically lose several children to smallpox or, or other diseases. And that was just factored in. It was a fact of life. Uh, and people were much more aware that death was something that, that could visit you at any time. We've got use because of the success of medicine and med medical technology. We don't ever think about death until we're right at the end of life. So I think part of this, obviously, <laughs> it's difficult with really young children, but we need to start to have more of a conversation about end of life and end of life care and what it might mean to accept that there are certain risks that we can't be um, quarantined from by med medical technology. Wow. So with this said, Mark, are pandemics inevitable? Are you hopeful at all about the future? Well, uh, yeah, because I'm a glass half full kind of person. So although I study pandemics and epidemics, even right now, I'm quite positive because uh, I have a lot of faith in the human race, despite, you know, everything we seem to do wrong. We are the most successful species on the planet because we always find a way to prevail or change our behavior somehow and thrive. That having been said, we know that pandemics have always occurred uh, and we know that infectious disease will always be with us. I think one of the mistakes was to think that this period, this kind of golden age we lived through after the Second World War up to about, you know, the 1980s when HIV AIDS emerged, this period where uh, medical schools talked about the conquest of infectious disease and all medical interns shifted to studying chronic diseases like cancer and heart disease, you know, diseases of conditions of modern life. We need to have a, a recalibration now and say, look, infectious disease has always been with us. It's not going away. We've been through this, this very special period. But because of all the things we do in terms of globalization and putting pressure on animal habitats, it's still, we're still going to be facing these things. But we can do things to change that, to ameliorate that. And I think one of the good things about this pandemic is it's put things on the table, politically speaking, that haven't been on the table for many, many years or decades even. One of them is the role of the state and big government, okay? The state and government can do things that the private sector just can't do as well. Like, for instance, joining up hospitals so that one hospital that has ventilators 
and doesn't have an outbreak can send them to another hospital somewhere else in the United States. There's things that the private sector does well. The private sector is incredibly innovative. They can maybe come up with new types of ventilators or very quickly manufacture PPE if there's a shortage. So I think we need to recognize that, you know, there's a, there's a role for the private sector, but also there's a really big role now for the state that goes to the pandemics, but it also goes to addressing some of the uh, weaknesses in our economic system and uh, the huge inequalities that mean that the burden of pandemics and epidemics always falls on the least well-off the most vulnerable segments of our population, right? So not everyone can fly to New Zealand or their survival bolt hole when there's a pandemic. Most of us have to have to isolate in our communities wherever we happen to be. And there's nobody isolated anymore. It's a global world. When uh, disadvantaged communities get sick, everybody gets sick. Exactly. So, I mean, people talk about contagion as though, oh, contagion is something terrible. But I think that one of the things that this pandemic has reminded us of, and we see it here now, we're having a conversation over Zoom, is even though we're physically isolated, there has never been a time when people are making as many social connections. So in my neighborhood, I'm getting to know my neighbors really for the first time. You know, people are talking and sharing suitably sort of uh, uh, decontaminated across garden fences and things. So, I mean, the root of the word contagion is to touch together or to bring together. It's when two things come together. So obviously when a virus comes together with our immune system and we have a meta, that's a bad thing. But it also reminds us of our human connection and of our humanity. And I think that's where the hope lies. That's where, you know, I put my faith that something good will come out of this. That is fantastic. I'm, I'm a hopeless optimist, Bill. That's all. You have to be <laughs> optimistic or you're not going to get anything done. Thank you so much. Our guest today has been Mark Honigsbaum. He's a historian and author of The Pandemic Century and hosts the podcast, Going Viral. Join the conversation. Leave a voicemail about your experience with the pandemic. The phone number here in the States is 201-472-0785. That's 201-472-0785. I am your host, Bill Nye, and my friends, this is a pandemic, a worldwide epidemic. We are all, all humankind, we are in this together. And now more than ever, as Dr. Honigsbaum points out, science rules. If you like science rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Science Rules Coronavirus Edition is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. The show is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and our engineer is once again Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford. Chris Bannon is the CCO, the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher... Science rules. And as I like to remind you, those three more things. Let's make it four. Protect your T-zone, your eyes, nose, and mouth. And wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Thank you. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.